Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Sweet dreams are made of this by this. I mean the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends at the Eurythmics for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. It is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. I want to kick off this episode by thanking Jesus Salas Rodriguez for being nice enough to send me a jelly roll for Christmas. I'm not kidding. He sent me a jelly roll from Puerto Rico. Me and everyone I work with, thank you. We enjoyed it. It was consumed totally. And I want to invite all of you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam. By the way, nice to meet you. I'm John McAdam. I didn't introduce myself. Just uh, search that name and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs. And if you enjoy this podcast, you will also enjoy our Facebook group. Uh, Just search Stick to Wrestling and it'll come up. It is a lot of fun conversation. We answer questions. We have discussions, etc. Born out of the Facebook group is this show. My guest is Max Levy, and we are going to talk about something he posted on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group, which is the demise of the WWF in the early 90s. Max, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to be back. Good to have you here. Um, so, yeah, the WWF went into, uh, I mean, business started declining in the late 80s. Like, 89, things started to turn down a little bit. And, you know, every year was a little bit worse than the last year. 1991, they wanted to have WrestleMania at the, uh, at the, tro- where, where the Trojans play football, Max? The Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Thank you. <laughs> at the Coliseum, and it was not going to sell out, so they made up some terrorism story, and they had it at the L.A. Sports Arena. And that just shows you where the WWF was going. And by 90, was it 95 or 96 that they had WrestleMania? It was 95. They had WrestleMania in Hartford, Connecticut, the old Hartford Civic Center. Yeah, the uh, the official reason was that they wanted to have uh, WrestleMania in Hartford because they wanted to have it in their home state. And they wanted to reward all of the loyal workers at Titan Towers who would normally not get to attend uh, a WrestleMania. But the truth of the matter is, you know, they were doing it as a to- as a cost saving measure because then they didn't have to take all of those people that they would normally take on the road to Chicago or Las Vegas or Los Angeles or wherever they could have held it. It was just cheaper to hold it in a building that you could you know drive to from Stamford and or wherever people lived. And you know, the problem there was that it just was the most un WrestleMania feeling WrestleMania. It was just seemed like some piped up house show that they build as a, a big event like this. Yeah, I mean, that shows you where the WWF was, and that's before WCW exploded. But, Max, I'll tell you what, we, you listed a post, and you had a bunch of reasons why you thought the WWF went underground. The ship really hit the iceberg in 1992 when they had the sex scandal and the mm-hmm. steroid scandal at the same time. Yeah, you know, I was, it was something that uh, I'd been thinking about, and, and my thought was that, you know, when you look at, how business in the WWF went south in the early 90s. It's basically people go to two particular reasons. They go to the Iraq war angle with Sergeant Slaughter, and they go to the steroid scandal. And my opinion was that each was definitely a factor and each an important factor, but there was much more to it than that. And that the decline, if you 
our, our tracing, it kind of like you mentioned before, it didn't just suddenly happen. It was seeping in over a period of time until it suddenly became very noticeable. So I wanted to look at you know some of the other causes behind the fall. And you know, there are a few specific dates on the calendar, I think, that that really point to the the decline and certain decisions that the WWF made during that time period that helped the trouble along. I can't wait to get into this. And I'll, I will tell you that I was having conversations with people in the early to mid nineties who were like, look, you know, it's not going to ha- happen today, but it's not entirely possible where two, three years down the road, either the WWF gets way scaled down or they're out of business. Again, this is before WCW came in and had them against the ropes at one point. Yeah, yeah. It's as bad as things got for the WWF during this time frame. WCW was actually in even worse shape uh, and would be for quite some time until they started making their move out of the out of the hole, really, when they when they got Hogan. And it was ultimately Nitro getting on the air that that really signaled a big change. Yeah, I mean, not to get away from the WWF, but I mean, to this day, I am a little bit surprised that WCW even got to the era where Eric Bischoff opened up Nitro. I mean, there was a lot of talk that, you know, WCW was a subsidiary of Turner Home Entertainment. And I am, to this day, I'm surprised they didn't shut that down in like 93 or 94. Yeah, ultimately, I think, you know, when you talk about 93, 94, the idea that things had gone really south with Hogan and the WWF by then, he wasn't going to be sticking around. I think the idea that, you know, we can get this guy and that will change everything was enough for whoever was writing the checks to say, okay, try to go get him. If you can, we'll write the check. Let's see if we can make something of this. If, you know, Hogan stays in the WWF and there's no chance to get him, I do wonder if, you know, they either would have pulled the plug completely or would have scaled it down into something that was more along the lines of strictly a TV product with, you know, no pretenses about trying to run any, you know, arenas or cities or things like that. That is what I was saying in like 93, 94, that I was saying that is what WCW should become strictly a, a television product that puts out pay-per-views and, you know, and don't pay the wrestlers big salaries, have it, you know, okay, I know, I understand you want to go to the WWF and this is a step up the ladder and that's fine. You know, it's kind of interesting. One of the, I think it's maybe the second wrestling observer newsletter that had uh, a headline on the George Zahorian trial. The other big headline that week was Ric Flair getting fired. So uh, a lot of this uh, insanity happening to both groups was happening at the same time. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of people don't give Eric Bischoff credit for getting WCW up on its feet. Yes, he did not keep it going forever, but I thought he was really smart. Like Bill Watts wanted to save WCW by making it smaller and smaller. Eric said, hey, let's make it bigger and bigger. Let's get on a primetime slot on a major network. Let's get Hulk Hogan. Let's get Randy Savage, et cetera. And, and, and Eric was given incentive to grow and given incentive to make it bigger and better. Watts was brought in with a mandate to get the cost down and with an incentive of, you know, I believe it was 10, maybe 8% or 10%, but however much he was able to trim off the budget and save, he was going to get 8 to 10% of that to himself as a bonus. So. Naturally, the incentive for him was not to spend one dime extra that he didn't need to. And it really showed up on the screen and in the way that the TV production kind of got scaled down. And some of the guys they brought in that clearly they came cheap, guys like Tony Atlas, who nobody wanted in 1992. Butch Reed, who was kind of washed up at that point. Dick Slater, Greg Valentine, guys that 
to be perfectly frank, weren't going to make up any money, but probably didn't cost them a lot. Exactly. And I remember the argument, Brian Pillman didn't make it personally, but Bill Watts was trying to severely cut Brian Pillman's pay. And Brian had a contract that was signed in good faith. And Watts is like, hey, let's tear up this contract. And what made it worse for, you know, for optics was that Watts was going to pocket 10% of every dollar he took away from Brian Pillman and Pillman just wouldn't budge. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually Watts had to finally give in and start pushing Pillman again. But yeah, yeah. He basically said to Pillman, we want to take you off the guarantee. We're going to give you a, a per night, not a ceiling, but a per night floor. And, you know, we're going to try to get you, you know, as many dates as possible to make it up to you. But he decided that he would rather be in the opening match making, you know, 200 grand or whatever it was than being in the main event to be you know, guaranteed 750 bucks a night or a thousand a night or whatever it was. And, you know, just hope they ran enough uh, house shows to make it worth it. Yeah, and for, it was the right move for Pillman. As I said, you know, the company signed a, th- a, a contract in good faith. They need to live up to it. Anyway, Max, let's talk about the demise of the WWF. Like, what do you think was the biggest factor? Well, it's hard to say what the biggest one was because I think that it was a lot of things together that either happened yep. simultaneously or happened consecutively. So I want to go back and just start with you know, WrestleMania six, it was a huge success. They sold out Sky Dome in Toronto. Hogan versus Warrior was, in the minds of some people, literally a miracle about how yes. good it was. You know, nobody could believe it. I've heard people since then say, oh, well, it wasn't that good. It doesn't hold up to repeat viewings, but that doesn't matter. It matters on April 1st, 1990, what the people watching then thought of it. And I don't know if anybody, maybe some people were rooting for Hogan and he lost and that upset them or whatever, but nobody could look at the match and say that it was bad. It, they were coming out of that pay-per-view on a big high. And right around the time uh, of the pay-per-view, either maybe like, I think they announced during the pay-per-view that they were going to the LA Coliseum the next year. They did. Within a week of the pay-per-view, you know, they had Jack Tunney sternly tell us that, you know, Hogan and Warrior had pushed themselves beyond, you know, the limits of uh, what he could tolerate as proper human conduct or whatever. So he was not going to sanction rematches. I mean, right there, it's very clear. Hogan, you know, they just had Hogan versus Warrior, the ultimate challenge. It's very clear that the following year, it was going to be Hogan versus Warrior, the ultimate rematch, because, you know, that stadium held 92,000 for football. You know, I think the WWF was kicking around 120,000 as a potential crowd mm-hmm. for WrestleMania 7. I, that's preposterous. They couldn't get that many in there, but they were going to get close to 100,000, depending on how they scaled it. And the only, literally the only match they had that could possibly have filled it was Hogan versus Warrior 2. And in an alternate universe, they went through with that. And maybe what happened in the years afterwards ended up being a lot different. But instead, you know, late in the summer, they ended up deviating towards Sergeant Slaughter. And, you know, a lot is made about the Iraq war angle and Slaughter eventually becoming an Iraqi sympathizer uh, with the gimmick. When he came in, Iraq hadn't invaded Kuwait yet. They brought Slaughter in in the middle of the summer with the idea that he's going to do his old heel Marine gimmick but he's going to be a Cold War relic who still wants to feud with Nikolai Volkov, even though communism is done and the, the Russians are our friends now and Nick's a baby face. I think a week after they started running the first vignettes that he was coming back, that's when Iraq went into Kuwait. And it wasn't really until, oh, I don't know, probably taped in late August, but getting on the air in the latter mid to latter part of September, that's when they brought in Sheikh Adnan El-Kasi as General Adnan to manage him. That's when things started getting connected with Sarge siding with Iraq. And they basically booked themselves out of the one match they had that was going to fill that stadium. And 
you know, as a wrestling fan, I think a lot of, I'm not going to say that there were no fans that were offended by the Iraq angle or thought that it was in terrible taste and maybe tuned out because of it. That was absolutely the case. But I remain convinced to this day that the real reason WrestleMania seven failed was because nobody bought slaughter in that spot. Nobody wanted to see that match and fans just rejected it. You know, the fans aren't the idiots that the promoters think them to be. And I truly think that they promised the fans a nice shiny new bike, Hogan versus warrior. And, you know, gave them, you know, the beat up rusted bike that had been sitting down at the city dump instead. <laughs> what are people going to want? And I, I really think that that deviation to slaughter pushed, that was one, just one of the many, I'm looking for the right word, raindrops in the water that ended up being the tsunami on the other side of the ocean. Yeah. And there's a couple of things I wanted to go over. Um, I mean, number one, for some reason, I don't know the details of this. They thought they were getting Ric Flair. They thought they were going to have Ric Flair by April or March 1991, and they were certainly going to think about having Hogan versus Flair as you know the main event. I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not sure how I like know that in the back of my head that they, that they thought they were getting Flair, but they did. Secondly, I think another thing that broke them that worked against them when Warrior beat Hogan at WrestleMania six. They did not start pushing Warrior as their new number one guy. I mean, they clearly had Warrior as maybe even Hogan as one and number one and Warrior as one A. That's when Hulk Hogan became the immortal Hulk Hogan. Yes, and they talked yes. about him. And I think what they should have done was, look, you know, we put the title on the Warrior. We've been looking for this guy who's going to take us to the next post Hogan era. Give him a real shot. And what they did instead. SummerSlam, and that brings me to SummerSlam, it was Rick Rude against the Ultimate Warrior for the title, but the real main event, it felt like, was Hulk Hogan against the Earthquake, and here's another problem in my view. They started pushing guys who just didn't have it. Like, I mean, nothing against John Tenta, but is this guy really a main eventer in the top promotion in the world? You know, I thought he was a pretty decent worker, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, he did not have a great look with the the beard and, you know, the long balding fringe. You know, I thought that the sit down splash that he did was a really lame maneuver because it was abundantly clear that he was, I'm looking for the right word, that he was pulling it, that he wasn't really landing on the guy with any weight. You couldn't look at him, do that move and have that suspension of disbelief that says this is a legitimate move. So he'd do it. And it was clear he was stopping short of his target on the way down, which is good. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to hurt the other guy, but it's also supposed to look like it would hurt him. And it, it really did not. And flipping over to warrior and rude. I, I wonder sometimes if they actually knew they were going to go with warrior until maybe the very last moment, because they had nothing set up for him as a challenger. Their move was Rick rude, beat him for the intercontinental title. He's the only guy who's ever beat him. So we're going to have rude be, you know, the number one contender and the rude cut off all the curly hair and, Stop kissing the ladies. You know, the innuendo laden uh, interviews were gone. He started to, uh, you know, take things more seriously. And, you know, what happened from there was, you know, we were supposed to instantly buy him as a challenger. But at WrestleMania six, I would have thought, have him beat somebody that fans might take seriously, like have him beat Beefcake, for instance, really put him in a position where coming out of it, you can legitimately say he's the number one contender and maybe you have a chance of drawing. And instead, you know, he beat Jimmy Snuka and he was just coming off a feud where he jobbed to Piper uh, all over the country in gimmick matches to close it out in the early mm -hmm. part of 1990. 
you know, there was no way to, to take him seriously for the spot. Yeah. And, you know, I haven't even brought up Dino Bravo and the giant push that he got. I mean, that was that was absolutely crazy. And I'm sure some people, you know, they grew up watching the WWF and, you know, grew up with the top heels being Randy Savage and Roddy Piper and, who, you know, Ted DiBiase. And now you've got the earthquake and Dino Bravo. There's You, you got to lose some fans just from disinterest. Yeah, yeah. And, and the worst part about it, too, is that, you know, Piper's still there and Savage is still there and DiBiase is still there. So it's not even like you can say, well, those guys are gone. So now they have these guys. Yeah, it's like they had all those big stars still there just doing other things. And now they've got Bravo and Earthquake getting pushed to the moon. I, I'm not as down on the Earthquake push as you are. I think it could have been done better. And I think that pairing him with Bravo, especially, you know, it seemed like Bravo was actually being pushed as the bigger star of the two. Yes. Uh, you know, that that didn't work, you know, and nothing against Jimmy Hart. But, you know, maybe it would have worked better if it had been Heenan. I don't know. It's just there were way give him a better look, give him a better finisher, get him away from Bravo. And, you know, maybe things could have gone a little bit better. Maybe have him beat somebody on the way to Hogan who mattered. Yeah. And you say nothing against Jimmy Hart. And I agree with you. But let's face it, you know, Heenan had been portrayed as the number one manager by a really long margin since 1984 and now we've got this guy you know jimmy hart who we all know is just not as big a star exactly exactly and and it's funny because you know it worked with boss man in 88 and uh, you know late 88 early 89 it worked with boss man against hogan and you had slick but you know the the angle with the nightstick was a much hotter angle than uh hogan getting sit down splashed a couple of times by by earthquake and you know hogan got beat up by boss man but he was right back you know, ready to go to war and earthquake does this attack on Hogan and it's really not, it didn't look good. And now they're selling it like Hogan's dead with tugboat on TV, begging us to write letters and get well cards. So the WWF can build up a mailing list for its uh, merchandise catalog. It just, they had an idea of what they wanted to do, but the execution was all wrong. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention, I mean, I mean, it was pretty well known. I know you weren't like in the circle yet, Max. It was pretty well known, like on the uh, insider circle, whatever you want to call it, that Hogan was losing the title because we knew he was taking the summer off. So we knew Warrior was going to be the new guy. And it was kind of all a big mystery. Like, you know, what will a post Hogan WWF look like? I mean, you know, Randy Savage, a couple of years later, earlier, excuse me, it was the same thing. It was like Hogan was still by far the number one guy ahead of Randy. Now it looks like the warrior is going to get a real chance, but he didn't. Yeah. And there's other things going on in the background too. You know, they pushed the big match at mania that year as, you know, title versus title belt versus belt. And then warrior wins and immediately gives up the intercontinental title. So it does make you wonder what the, what the point of it all was. And you know, there were other things happening in the background. You know, they finally get the Legion of doom and people are going to get that Legion of doom demolition feud that a lot of people had, fantasy booked and fantasized about in the late 80s but you know that's when they bring in crush and axe ends up becoming more of a manager and it's smash and crush against hawk and animal isn't what the fans wanted to see and you know there was never any compelling angle to make that matchup work you know i don't remember demolition sneak attacking hawk and animal or you know there being anything other than you know we're teams that wear black and face paint so we have to feud and you know it ended up being something that should have drawn a lot of money you know they did uh I think Warrior and the LOD against all three demolition guys at house shows. And then by the end of the year, they turfed out Edie and they put an end to the feud. You know, Jack Tunney just came on TV and said, you know, no more demolition versus LOD matches. Now it's going to be 
LOD versus Fuji and the Orient Express, and it was over. And what should have been a big feud of that year ended up being another wasted opportunity and another step down the ladder towards the, the big trouble that they would soon be in. You know, for years, I was asked the question, you know, when are the Road Warriors going to the WWF over and over again? I mean, I would make once a year, I would make an appearance on a local radio show right before WrestleMania. And that question always came up. When are the Road Warriors going to the WWF? When it finally happened in 1990, I'm not always right, but I correctly predicted that they were just going to be another tag team. They're not going to matter here. They're going to be, you know, the 1991 version of the British Bulldogs, and I wasn't far off. No, they just, the WWF has a hard time with pushing guys and gimmicks that they didn't somehow make, or at least remake. And they didn't do that with Hawk and Animal, and they didn't let them have the quick, dominating, you know, let's squash the Mulkies in 20 seconds kind of victories that got them over so big with Crockett. They just didn't know what to to do with them and didn't seem interested in figuring it out. It was just another team to add to the mix. And they'd made some attempts in 91 to undo what they'd already done in 1990, but it was already too late. Yeah. And I mean, part of it might've been too. I don't think they got the right push and they did do have that main event run with in six mans with Kerry uh, against the three man demolition. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's almost like they don't like to push or they didn't like to push something that wasn't their own creation. And this was just a paramount example of it. Same thing. I predicted the same thing when the Steiners came to the WWF. They're going to be just another tag team, and they were. Yeah, and, and you know, with those two, they needed another good team to work with, and they happened to get there right at the moment when the tag team division was going down the drain. So, you know, they start off with the Beverly Brothers. You know, they move on to you know DiBiase and IRS, and you know they were a good team. And then, but you know, they're not really like the best team for Rick and Scott. They needed younger, more athletic guys. And, and then by the fall, you know. It was just pretty much another, again, another wasted opportunity. They were just another team, like you said. All right. Now, do you have anything you'd like to discuss before WrestleMania 7? Uh, let me think about this. I think we've mostly touched on the on the stuff I wanted to get to. Mainly, you know, that I guess as I was reviewing things to get ready for this show, this conversation, you know, I was kind of tracing where they were going with, uh, you know, Sergeant Slaughter and the whole Iraq gimmick. And it was a gradual build that got progressively more over the top and more offensive, probably in the minds of most people. You know, he went from just bringing Adnan in as a manager to suddenly Sarge is waving the Iraqi flag. Then he does the interview at Survivor Series, directly mocking the troops in the field. Then in December, he goes on TV with a pair of boots that he says were sent to him by Saddam Hussein and that he's going to wear them at the Rumble against Warrior. And then at the Rumble, he's not only wearing those boots, but that's when he switched out of his old fatigues into the Iraqi uniform. Uh, they even did a couple of angles. I had completely forgotten about this, but they did an angle where one where he they actually did it twice, one where he burned a Hogan poster and the other where he burned a Hulk rules t-shirt, basically the Hogan merchandise being the surrogate for slaughter, burning the flag. Yes. And, and... it's interesting that, that those things happened right about the point when Bob Costas pulled out and, where the idea that this was all going too far was starting to get into the news, at least in the wrestling circles anyway. And then the crazy thing is, it's like they didn't even bring Iron Sheik in as Colonel Mustafa until after Mania. You yeah. Know, when you think that you, it's time to start winding this down, especially since the war was basically done and over in a week for all intents and purposes, you know, that would have been the time to start cycling it down. But instead, they ramped it up because they wanted to get a SummerSlam main event out of it. 
Yeah, you know, and you know, going back a little bit further, I mean, I want to say it was June 1990. They brought Sergeant Slaughter back. If someone had told me a year earlier that they were going to bring Slaughter back, I would have been like, no, they're not. You don't know what you're talking about. They didn't just bring him back. They put the title on him. It was a, a Royal Rumble 1991. Ultimate Warrior, they decide they've had a, you know six months or eight months with the title. Whatever it was, was long enough. And they put the title on Slaughter, so we all know what WrestleMania is going to be. To me, the most incredible champion of all time, the one, like, if you had told me a year before that this guy was going to have the title was Bob Backlund, but Sergeant Slaughter is a close number one, uh, oh, yeah. a close he number was, two. He was completely washed up. Yeah, he's in the AWA where, you know, they do a, a monthly TV taping uh, in Rochester, Minnesota, south of the Twin Cities in front of maybe a thousand people. You know, they run some high school and VFW spot shows, you know, in front of 300 people. And the start, you know, the G.I. Joe thing was over. Any fame that he'd had from his big WWF run was pretty much finished by the middle of 86. You know, he was overweight. He was slow. You know, it made absolutely no sense. And they didn't bring him in for this role. You know, I think he was going to feud with Volkoff. Then he'd probably move on to Duggan. And then, you know, maybe eventually he'd turn babyface and have a going away feud of sorts and then retire and, and become an agent. But, you know, instead he got this push of a lifetime and it's just ridiculous, even more so looking back at it. Yeah. And this is again, another reason why the WWF went down the tubes. I mean, in 1989, well, late 88, Jim Crockett sold the NWA to Turner and Turner was considering, I know there was some talk about contacting Sergeant Slaughter and bringing him in. I was like, don't, it's not 1984 anymore. This guy has nothing left. And here Vince is making him, you know, by leaps and bounds, the top heel. He's the champion and he's headlining WrestleMania. And I'll say something else too. I don't have a problem telling you that I found the Iraq war angle offensive. I have no problem telling you that. I know a couple of guys who fought in Iraq who thought the whole thing was great and they're entitled <laughs> to their opinion, but they, they said, Oh yeah, yeah. we, They'd get the observer and they'd rally around it and they loved it. And, you know, hey, fine, if you guys like it. But I still don't think a wrestling company should be building an angle that stems from a real war where people were dying. You know, I, I completely get it. And I definitely believe that there were others who shared your opinion that this was too offensive and, and too over the line. You know, I know that in 1991, I was much younger and probably wasn't really thinking as broadly as that. And, you know, my thought is that, yeah, I think a lot more fans were just turned off by the fact that this guy who arguably shouldn't even be in the company was main eventing the biggest show of the year. But I absolutely agree. It was in, it was in bad taste. It wasn't necessary. It's not like, man, we have a chance to get one of the biggest stars going right now. And, but because of his gimmick, if we get him, we're going to have to do this Iraq war angle, but it'll be worth it for the business. It's like it actually was negative to business. There was no need to do it. Uh, and yet they just kept going further and further with it until finally, I believe it was the weekend of the Rumble. They had Jack Tunney go on TV you know, and state that Slaughter and Adnan were speaking for themselves and that they didn't represent the WWF, nor did they represent Arab Americans. It was a complete damage control piece. But even at that point, you could see that they were getting enough heat from it that it made sense maybe to ease off on the throttle, but they made that disclaimer and then they just pushed the throttle right all the way down. Yeah. They, you know, all this guy's just acting on his own, like get out of here. I mean, yeah. that's just about the craziest thing a person could possibly say. 
And just to jump into mania, you know, and the idea of they had to fill this gigantic stadium. I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind and no trouble believing that Vince really believed that this thing was going to fill that. And if you felt a wave of patriotism that came over people at that time, or in some cases, maybe went a little further into nationalism, it was there. You could deceive yourself into thinking that this thing was going to do business, but it just did not. And, you know, the thing with a stadium show is at least a WWF stadium show is they mean to fill the whole stadium. It wasn't like Crockett on the bash tour where, you know, the ring would be at home plate uh, or second base, or they would put the ring on one football sideline at the 50, but, you know, much closer to one side of the stands and they would just close off the other. And they meant to fill the whole thing Mm -hmm. in order to fill the whole thing. You've got to get a big boost right out of the gate as far as when tickets go on sale that you know that first day you can say we've already sold 25 35,000 tickets or you know maybe you put it out there within the first week since that info might not have come as quickly in the pre-internet age but then from there you know you create that demand the guy who's thinking about going says man i better get my tickets now or they're all going to be gone or the only thing that's going to be left are the stuff way up by the lights you know they didn't get that out of the gate blast with the tickets and then consequently, the guy who's on the fence about going, you know, when he talks to Ticketmaster and asks what's available and he's told, oh, you can pretty much sit anywhere. Uh-huh. Instead of having the incentive to buy, sometimes what happens is you think, well, do I really want to go? There's plenty of seats available. I guess I could probably wait and, you know, see what's going on. You know, when we get a little bit closer, maybe get a better idea of what the card's going to be. And because of that, they never got to the point where tickets were moving, where they had that big demand. And finally, they had to pull the plug on the stadium and go next door into the sports arena. And even in there, I think that by the end, they still had a couple of hundred seats that they didn't sell that you could have gone up to the Coliseum, not the Coliseum, but the sports arena on the day of the event. And you could have had yourself a couple of tickets. The other thing before I I stop is that Los Angeles as a site, I mean, it's a huge metro area. It's close to San Diego, close to Vegas. Bay Area is in state, you know, one of the most populated states in the country. But a couple of things that really made it work for WrestleMania three in Michigan, WrestleMania six in Toronto, and what probably kept WrestleMania eight in Indianapolis from being as big of a disaster as it could have been was that they're centrally located as far as where they are in relation to the populations of the United States and Canada, you know, short flights or drivable from so many places for so many people that, you know, it's real easy for somebody in, I've done it. I've driven from Minneapolis to Detroit. It's not a fun drive, but you can, you can do it in, you know, 12, 13 hours. You know, you can get there, you know, pretty quick from Pittsburgh, from Cleveland, coming from the South. You know, it's easy to get in there. And, you know, if you're flying from somewhere, you know, it's a short flight from the Twin Cities, from Chicago, coming from further East. That's not the case in Los Angeles. You know, if you're in Minneapolis, you know, you're probably not driving to LA. If you're in Chicago, you're not driving to LA. And if you're going to fly from those places, let alone further east, it's going to cost you. And suddenly it makes the idea of going not seem so attractive. Exactly. I mean, I would occasionally take shows in, you know, at the Meadowlands uh, or from Philadelphia because it's one hotel night. That's it. And that keeps your Mm -hmm. cost down. But, you know, going to Los Angeles, forget it. Now you're paying for a flight. Now you're paying for an overnight, et cetera. And that's a really good point. I mean, I think the Detroit and the uh, the Toronto main events were a lot more attractive, too. But, I mean, both of those places are within a day's drive from a lot of population. And and with L.A., too, you know, you're not going to just grab a subway or an L train somewhere. you got to rent a car. And the gas is more expensive out there. So, consequently, it, it becomes an even bigger 
you know, outlay on, on money to just to go out there and see it. And, you know, if you're getting Hogan Warrior, you might think about it. If it's Hogan Slaughter, probably not. I mean, we were all kind of laughing about them running the Coliseum. We, we were all saying, you know, we're going to be seeing a, a WrestleMania with a lot of empty seats. And then they come up with, I mean, it's the WWF in a way. It's, it's comical, but it really is brilliant. They announced that they have to move WrestleMania. They cannot have this in an open air stadium because of, of terrorism concerns. So, and once again, they're building into the angle with that. So we're moving it into the nice, safe LA Coliseum. And, and it was very Not plausible bad. at the time because, you know, remember, that was the year that the Super Bowl was taking place within days of the actual shooting beginning. You know, it was outdoors in Tampa. That's where Whitney Houston sang the national anthem so famously. And, like, you know, a lot of the stuff we're getting into sports stadiums now with metal detectors and, you know, you can't bring this and you can't bring that. We take it for granted as normal. You know, it was already in place in a lot of areas before 9-11. And since then, it's become even more intense. But the first time that ever happened anywhere was in the early part of 1991. You know, Super Bowl was a big part of it. Here in the Twin Cities, they had uh, NCAA basketball tournament, first and second round games at the Metrodome. So a lot of those seats are far away. You couldn't even bring a pair of binoculars in. That's how worried they were. And, you know, the Metrodome for past and future NCAA tournaments, you you could seat hop quite a bit because, you know, there were always some empties, you know, who wants to sit through, you know, a double header or even a quadruple header. That day, you could like get out of your seat, go get a, a hot dog or something, and then you come back to go sit down again. And the usher that you previously passed, who you know you maybe have passed a couple times already, is asking you for your stub. You know, it was, you know, the idea that oh yeah, you know, terrorism. I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. It was it was plausible. It it was ridiculous, but it was plausible. No, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I mean, and you know, not not to not stick to wrestling, but I do remember. January 15th, 1991, when it turned midnight and I'm sitting there watching CNN and they are focused on the, uh, on Baghdad. And all of a sudden, like you see explosions on your television. And I just remember that moment being, oh my God, we're at war. We're in, and it's on TV. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a video game or a, or a TV show. And, oh, and just to clarify from before, I was not saying that the WWF legitimately had any uh, any threat of terrorism. I mean, they just couldn't sell enough tickets. But right. you know, them putting it across to the public, you know, if you didn't know better, you know, you'd think that it made a, a lot of sense. But yeah, it was very weird. When the war started, we'd never had anything like that before. And it was just very strange. It really was. I mean, I at the time, I was, what, 25? And we had, you know, in my lifetime, or to my knowledge, I know Vietnam was still going on when I was a little kid, but I was a little kid. And this is the first time in my life, like, we are at war, and we kind of have been ever since. But anyway, um, so yeah, (laughs) we have have WrestleMania, and then Hogan wins the belt back, and they take the feud with Slaughter around the horn. It actually did pretty well at the gate for the most part, Uh, but WWF was already seeing, like, their houses were going down a little bit at a time, and by mid-1991, it just wasn't what it used to be. I mean, you know selling 6,000 seats in Sacramento or whatever. Hey, that's great, but it's not what it was. And there are reasons behind it. It's because the product was getting weaker. Now let's talk about SummerSlam 1991. The main event, ladies and gentlemen, is Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior against Sergeant Slaughter, who is old and washed up, Iron Sheik, who is unforgivably old, washed up and out of shape, and Sheik Adnan, who is an old man. This is what they're trying to push as a main event. But wait, it's actually kind of a double main event 
because at the end of the show, we're going to see Randy Savage and Elizabeth get married. That is not a wrestling show to put on your number two show of the year. No, no way. And, you know, the, the deal with the, the handicap main event match, you know, with Hogan and Warrior against Slaughter and his uh, and his buddies, you know, the big deal with that match, you know, more than the heels that were actually in the match was that uh, Sid was making his on-screen debut as the special referee. Mm-hmm. And the big question going in was, well, is he going to be a baby face or is he going to, you know, screw over Hogan and Warrior? And now, you know, Hogan's got his next feud partner right in front of him as it happened. You know, not only did he uh, wind up being a baby face, but, you know, as soon as Warrior got backstage after the match, Vince fired him. And yep. next thing you know, Sid is basically getting Warrior's spot uh, as the number two baby face to Hogan. And he ends up going on, you know, they've spent all that time building up Warrior versus Undertaker over the summer. Again, another case of you think you're getting one thing, then you get the other. You know, they do the deal where, you know, Warrior's feuding with Taker and, you know, he asks Jake to show him the dark side and, then it turns out Jake and Undertaker are really in, in league with one another. And so it adds a new dimension to Warrior versus Undertaker. And then just when it's really going to get going at the house shows, Warrior's fired. And now Sid is against Undertaker. And you know they did the deal where Sid you know, stood up to them when they tried to disrupt a wedding reception. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. But you know it just didn't. Uh, Sid hadn't been around enough. He hadn't been established enough to have that spot. And then to make matters worse, he ended up getting hurt. And so, you know, they went from promoting him as the number two guy to Hogan to suddenly Sid is off TV and you're, you're down another baby face. I think that's about when they started bringing back Savage. I know that they were going to do that eventually, but I think Sid getting hurt ended up speeding up the timetable. It definitely did. Um, I definitely remember that. I also remember in 1991, I mean, WCW was going to put the belt on Sid at the 1991 Great American Bash. That's not speculation. That is a fact. They offered him the world to remain in WCW. And for the first time, it's said to be for the first time, when Vince McMahon would sign a new wrestler, he wouldn't guarantee them anything. He would just say, hey, I don't give guarantees. I give opportunities. And Sid was the first guy he gave a promise to. He promised, I heard this from a good source, he promised Sid a big push and the WrestleMania 8 main event. So when people say, you know, why didn't they do Flair versus Hogan at WrestleMania 8? Allegedly, it's because Vince promised Sid th- that spot. I've heard that as well. In fact, even though I was I was slowly creeping to the inside at the time, I wasn't all the way there yet. I remember hearing about Sid getting promised that spot even when he came in that summer. I think before he'd even been on TV, the word was going around that he was coming in for much more money than they would normally promise someone. And yeah, they were going to give him that, uh, you know, WrestleMania eight main event. And just looking at Sid, you know, he had the look, you know, he had the, the insane, intense interviews. He was absolutely terrible in the ring. And Hogan was not probably the guy. Well, we saw it for a fact. Hogan is not the guy to get a good match out of him. No. <laughs> and then the whole, you know, we're kind of sca- sca- skipping around here. But, you know, the deal with Sid was that, you know, he, he and Hogan had their falling out start at the Royal Rumble. And then Sid turned on him in a tag match, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, the idea was, you know, how could Hogan's good friend Sid turn on him like this? But you know, the problem was Sid got hurt so quickly after SummerSlam that all that time that was supposed to have been spent building them up as buddies never happened. So when you're telling the fan, oh, man, Hogan's good buddy Sid has turned on him, the fan is thinking, are they really that good of buddies? We haven't seen Sid in months. And now he came back and he's turned heel almost instantly. There was no bonding period. It didn't make a lot of sense. I think what we're talking about, the summer of 91, 
you got to talk about the other big thing that happened that summer, the trial of George Zahurian, the ah, that's right, the physician from uh, Pennsylvania who one point was uh, introduced by Joe McHugh at all the uh, tapings in uh, in Allentown. And he'd been popped in, I think, the latter part of 1990 uh, steroid distribution. And then his trial happened in July of that year. And because he was going to name some WWF guys as clients, Hogan was one of them. Piper was definitely one of them. Uh, Rick Martell. You know, it ended up this is when the steroid stuff started getting into the national news and it led to the infamous Hogan appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. Again, I'm going to say that I don't deny that, you know, this steroid thing coming out was extremely damaging to the WWF, but I don't think it's damaging necessarily in the way that a lot of people think, because again, the fans, they weren't idiots. We knew they were all on steroids or most of them. It's funny at the time, you know, the assumption was, you know, somebody like, I don't know, Rick Martell couldn't have been on steroids because, you know, he's much smaller than Hulk Hogan or Warrior. But uh, of course he was. And, and so were most of the guys, even the guys we, we didn't think were. And I don't think the fans really cared. I think they did care when it came out because it ruined the illusion in their mind that they could at least pretend or speculate that they didn't. But the negative publicity, it was bad for the WWF with sponsors. It was bad with the WWF for TV stations that they wanted to get the syndicated shows on. It was bad for the WWF at Target or and Toys R Us because they're not getting the prime shelf space that they once were. And it hurt them with the moms and dads of their kid audience that ended up, you know, maybe thinking twice, boy, do I want to buy little Johnny and little Jenny tickets to the next show at the Coliseum? Or, you know, do I want to get that, uh, you know, that wrestling buddy doll or that Hulkamania's greatest hits VHS cassette? You know, I think that it, it hurt them in those peripheral ways. But I think that the fans mostly didn't really care that these guys were on steroids. They just wanted to watch their wrestling show. The fallout of this was they had to start testing guys. And in the early part of 1992, you see the very obvious steroid guys starting to get weeded out. You know, Warlord is gone. Barbarian is gone. Bravo is gone. Other guys, my Hercules goes, other, other guys as well. And the guys who are left because they're being tested, they aren't using as heavily. And now the physiques in 92 aren't looking as good as they looked in 91. And that's where I think the steroids ended up hurting them because you've trained the fans to believe this is what stars look like. Now they don't look like it anymore. And I think it played a role in fans not being as interested. I definitely do. I mean, a lot of the fans tuned in to see those physiques. And like you said, this is what a a star is supposed to look like. And now you've got Randy Savage wearing a full body suit every time you see him on TV warrior came back and he's hiding his physique it was it was crazy i mean i just want to share an anecdote with everyone in a summer of 91 me and a van full of guys go down from new england to new jersey to see a couple of dennis caraluzzo shows he was having a, a double header day night when one of the guys was a referee and we wanted to go and the conversation turned to steroids and one of the guys who is it should have been a smart enough fan was like, yeah, Hogan's on steroids and this guy's on steroids, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And I was like, Are you kidding me? They're all on steroids. The only guys who weren't were guys like Dusty Rhodes and One Man Gang. That's it. And this guy like wouldn't accept it. I'm like, <laughs> he's like, Bret Hart's not on steroids. Terry Taylor's not on steroids. Arn Anderson's not on steroids. I'm like, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I. It's funny. You know, every WWF show I ever went to and a couple of WCW shows in that era as well. 
there was always some joker yelling, you know, doing the steroids, steroids chant at, you know, somebody like, you know, Hercules or Warlord or, you know, somebody in uh, WCW who fit the bill, you know, Rick Rude, Orndorff or something. And people would, you know, nobody would argue with them. People would actually laugh. You know, it was all just sort of a, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink joke. And, you know, I, you know, the idea that fans didn't know or that fans would care, you know, is stuff that, you know, it's harder for me to get my head around. You know, it's not like Ben Johnson cheating to win the gold medal at the 88 Olympics where he actually won because of steroids. I don't think fans even connected it in the sense that, you know, if you do a lot of steroids, you'll get a push. And if you don't do any, you won't get a push and maybe you won't be here. I don't think the fans really connected with that. I think they just connected with, you know, these guys look like something ripped out of a comic book and steroids are something you need to use to look like that. And you know, that was about it. I don't think people were offended by it in the way that, you know, a major leaguer or an NFL guy testing positive would have made people feel. No, I, I agree with you there. And it was what here's the thing. I think the the, the steroid scandal, it kind of took away their ability to look the other way. Like, yeah, yeah, this guy is huge and doesn't look natural, but I'm just, I'm not going to ask any question. Like now you have to say, OK, there's a good chance that this guy is using. Yeah, and in the Observer, Dave points a lot to you know Hogan going on the Arsenio Hall show and lying. And I wish I had looked up exactly the context that he put it in because it's something that he brings up often when the the steroid scandal of that era is discussed. But you know, I always thought that the thing that was bad was not so much that Hogan lying on the Arsenio Hall show turned off fans. I mean, I think it probably did with some. There's no way you can say that it didn't. But I don't think that was the issue so much as him lying was another thing that hurt the WWF with sponsors, hurt them with mainstream media, hurt them with getting the shelf space in the toy stores, hurting them with mom and dad who controlled the purse strings. And then as time went on and the product started declining and attendance started going down with it, then that as the thing that not toppled over many other dominoes becomes more important. But I think in a vacuum, it wasn't such a big deal. I could be completely wrong. Maybe somebody's got numbers that completely put it in an opposite frame where, you know, somebody can say, oh no, Hogan lied on Arsenio and TV ratings declined by 13% within a week and never came back up again. But, you know, my perception has always been that it's the bad stuff that that caused as opposed to the act itself that was the problem. Yeah. I mean, it was the ripple effect as you're implying. So now we're we're going further and further downhill, but we're not near the end of the cliff. One Good thing that happened for the WWF, they finally got Ric Flair. He finally came in September of 1991. I mean, it's there in black and white. The houses went up. People wanted to see Hogan and Flair. Yet I still have people who say to me today that they remember Flair showing up on primetime wrestling. And their reaction was, who is this old man? And I was interesting. I just assumed that, you know, it's funny. I never saw it in terms of there are WWF fans and there are people who are not WWF fans. I mean, there's clearly a few in each case, but there was wrestling on TV back then. I was, I was going to watch it. And I just assumed that everybody watched all the wrestling that was on and knew to some extent who everybody was to me, the, you know, the idea that nobody would know who Ric Flair is, was it's strange. I don't know what to say, but yeah, attendance in late 92 or pardon me, attendance in late 91 uh, and early 92 was actually, you know, it was softening in some places, but it was actually doing fine in a lot of others. The real problems for attendance didn't start until after Mania. And there's another scandal that we'll get to that I think played much more of a role in that than the uh, 
than the steroid situation. But yeah, Flair coming in, popped the gates. You know, they took Flair and Piper out in a few places, uh, you know, held back Hogan. Then they did Flair and Hogan. I do think that Flair and Hogan not having a feud that was properly pushed on TV prevented that feud from being what it could have been. I mean, yeah, I know that allegedly Vince made the promise to Sid that he was going to put him on the main event. And I would have said, Sid, I'm sorry, but things changed and I'll make it up to you. But to me, they had to have Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair as the main event on WrestleMania 8. And I mean, technically, you would think Flair was the champion, so he was defending against Savage. That's technically you know, the main event. Uh, you could have just taken Sid in a different direction and said, look, you know, we're, we're putting you against Randy Savage and we'll have it last main event. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. There, there's ways around it. And, and it was a, a huge missed opportunity. In fact, they even actually announced Hogan versus Flair as the main event initially. And then when Sid turned on Hogan on Saturday night's main event, when they were against Flair and Taker, that's when they switched it to Hogan and Sid. And then they had the whole deal with Rick claiming, you know, Elizabeth was mine before she was yours to set up him and Savage. And, you know, that opportunity was uh, another one down the drain. You know, this jumped into my head too. another factor where the WWF, it's a reflection of them declining in popularity, yet it's something that added to the decline. They got rid of Saturday night's main event. Yeah. You know, it ended up getting dropped by NBC and the last one to air on NBC was in the, I want to say the spring of 91. I don't know what the reason was for it getting dropped you know that ratings it it could have been ratings it could have been uh you know when the steroid stuff broke that uh that summer that you know that was one of the the dominoes that fell you know the other thing too was that when they put saturday night's main event on as an occasional replacement for snl saturday night live was in a very bad period creatively and for ratings you know to the point that at the end of the 85 86 season dennis miller was on weekend update openly joking about you know whether or not the show was going to be canceled you know they (laughs) even had a a contest where the winner was going to get to go to the season premiere of the 86 87 snl season and miller commented wryly if there is one uh and that was the year you know with like robert downey jr and anthony michael hall and and randy quaid and all these people who had names but who didn't belong in that environment they weren't that kind of performer Mm -hmm. but then you ended up with the Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, Kevin Nealon, John Lovitz, and Miller were still around, all these talented people. And suddenly the need to replace SNL with a wrestling show every once in a while no longer existed because they could get great ratings from the live shows. And even the reruns or the clip shows ended up doing good ratings as well. But then it ended up moving to Fox, and they did two on Fox. One uh, was early 92 between the Rumble and Mania, the second one late 92, right before Survivor Series in prime time instead of late night, an hour instead of 90 minutes. But I don't think they did much for the ratings. And and then that was the end of it. Yeah. And like I said, you know, having uh, them on NBC, I mean, to me, it made them look so major league. I mean, the idea of wrestling on network television was just insane when they first started doing it in 85. And now they're no longer on. And they, to me, they just look a lot less major league. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, even like the the two Saturday night's main events they had on Fox, you know, it's funny. It's still the WWF. The production values are about the same. They shot a big angle on the one uh, in February with Sid turning on Hogan. And they had Michaels win the Intercontinental title from Bulldog uh, on the one in the fall. And I think they did something to push Flair and Razor against Savage and Warrior for Survivor Series. But 
it didn't quite feel like Saturday night's main event. You know, there was just something about it that was different. Maybe it was just, just the fact that it was on at, uh, I think it was on at eight o'clock local time here in, in Minnesota in central time, uh, as opposed to being a late night in the SNL slot. And it just didn't feel the same. Yeah, and then they had three primetime specials. Granted, it was on a Friday night, but you're still primetime on network TV with the show where, you know, they built, they had Hogan versus Andre with the Hebners, and they had three of those, and then that went away too. And yeah, once the, again, making it look less major league. Yeah, the second one was the one where Savage and Hogan had their big breakup, where Liz wound up taking that just amazing bump when you consider, you know, who was taking it. And the funny thing was, you know, when they had those shows again, you know, they didn't really push either of them hard. I think they had two more after that. I think they had one in 90 and one in 91, or maybe it was just one in 90, but they didn't push it hard. And, you know, it wasn't treated like it was a big deal. They didn't like run some super big angle or some super hot match. You know, it was just sort of, you know, a thing to throw on TV. And there was nothing about it that felt special, you know, by the last one that they ran. Whereas the first two, you know, that was event television. The first one, you know, did ratings that, no other wrestling show in history before or going forward after is ever going to touch the ratings for that Hogan-Andre match. Those were special, and when you build something up like that, you got to keep it special, and they didn't. All right. The third one, I thought, looked special because it was Hogan versus Savage. They were supposed to have Mike Tyson as the guest referee. Oh, yeah, yeah. Buster Douglas upset the plan. Right, and Buster Douglas just made a mess at all of that. By the way, speaking of that special, shout-out to Jamie Ward. I saw Savage turn on Hogan at his house live that night, but Anyway, back to 92. Now we get to the good stuff. The big steroid scandal, number one, and it, it, these happened concurrently. This was a mm-hmm. one-two punch. The steroid scandal and, uh-oh, kids are, are allegedly being molested by wrestlers. Yeah, I was checking out the calendar to kind of get an idea of the, the dates on, you know, when did all of this happen? And the sex scandal with the ring crew kids getting uh, you know, harassed and uh, and coerced into acts and so forth. Now, that ended up happening a lot closer to Mania than I realized. I had thought that it had happened late 91, early 92. I don't think that even broke until March. But boy, once it broke, it was a big, big deal. And it was a lot bigger, to be perfectly frank, than the steroid deal was, at least as far as being big within a concentrated period of time. And I really believe that a lot of the trouble they had with attendance after Mania uh, was because of this, because with the steroids, it's like, oh yeah, you know, they, they use steroids. They all do. All right. No big deal. But when people heard about the, the ring crew, you know, getting harassed and wrestlers allegedly getting harassed and having to trade sexual favors for jobs and, and pushes, that was a whole other deal. I mean, there's no other way to say it. You know, the opinion uh, of gay people in 1992 by the general public was a lot different than it is now in 2020. And I really think that even if it's just two or three people doing some horrible stuff, I think in that era, it played into people's worst fears and worst prejudices. So, you know, oh yeah, sure. Those guys did it because they're all like that, you know, that's sort of, <laughs> and, you know, and then on top of that, you know, you have the whole situation with it being, uh, you know, well, how do you put this? You know, there's a homoerotic aspect to professional wrestling. There just is. Yeah, uh, you know, it's hard to deny. And that just sort of puts it even more into people's minds because now they're thinking, well, which wrestlers are gay? And, you know, <laughs> in 1990, you know, now it's, you know, not an issue for people or it shouldn't be. But then 
people just thought differently. And it was a, a big deal. And whereas mom and dad who control, you know, are we going to buy the pay-per-view? Are we going to go to the arena for the, for the local card? Are we going to buy the merchandise? Are we going to rent the wrestling videos at the video store? You know, for them, you know, the, these guys using steroids, I don't think was a big deal because I think mom and dad always knew. They maybe didn't like it when it came out because now they've got to talk to Junior about it. But boy, the sexual harassment part of it, I mean, that was something else that I think really did turn off the parents of these kids that they needed to sell all that merchandise. And it created this ripple effect of they lost a lot of that audience. And then they doubled down on the goofiness to try to get them back and ended up driving away people that could have sustained them if they had taken a more serious approach. Right. Now, I mean, not only do we have shrinking wrestlers, but and, you know, the, the sex scandal thing started, I mean, it started with Barry Orton doing an interview. I think it might have been with John Arezzi, where he talked about him being in the backseat of a car wedged between Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin and Orton. And I believe him. He said they wouldn't leave him alone. And this story just exploded. And, mm-hmm. you know, now Barry's on CNN and he's not equipped to, you know, w- without being coached, just telling his side of the story. Then we've got Vince McMahon, Dave Meltzer, John Arezzi on the Donahue show talking about this scandal. And it just blew up. And it, like I said, it started so small with Barry Orton sharing a story that happened to him back in the 70s, I think. And it just blew up. And that is when people started telling their kids, you know, hey, I don't want you watching this. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a Resi show. Yeah, I read uh, some of the uh, observers about this uh, in preparation, and that's where Dave brought it up. And then, you know, it ended up being the deal where some of the kids who'd been ring attendants who had, you know, made these accusations, and I think Orton as well, ended up on the Phil Donahue show. Yep. And that ended up being a pretty big deal. You know, Dave was mentioning Tom Cole, who I think, now is maybe the most remembered of the people who made the accusations. But there was another person whose name is escaping me that Dave said, you know, came off extremely credibly and extremely believably. Murray Hodgkin. On top of that, uh, Phil Mushnick did uh, a big thing in the New York Post about this. And it just ended up, or maybe it was the Daily News, I forget which paper, but whichever paper Mushnick is with, he did a big story about this regarding the whole Tom Cole thing. And, you know, that put it, right into the New York national media. And then it, it just, you know, spread out from there. You know, they had a guy, his name was Murray Hodgkin. They had just, they had hired him as an on-air personality. And Murray is on the Phil Donahue show. And Phil's like, all right, Murray, without taking us around the world, tell us what happened to you. And he said, I refuse to sleep with Pat Patterson. So I got fired. Right now. Very, very well put. And it struck me like, as I was watching the show, I'm like, Vince McMahon could, you could kill this right now. He could say, look, I made the decision to fire Murray Hodgkin. It was not based on anything he's talking about. He could have made it that simple. And I don't know why he just didn't use that as a go-to. Just say, look, Murray, I made the decision. It had nothing to do with anything you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know why he didn't do it either. I wonder if he didn't know what to do or if he thought there was some other way that he could somehow control this. I know that with... Murray Hodgson, that it ended up being a deal where he sued the WWF over this. And then eventually, I believe his own attorney ended up dropping the case and you know, referred to Hodgson as like the biggest con man that he'd ever met. And, you know, the idea that Hodgson was just trying to uh, you know jump on the bandwagon to get a payoff, 
you know, seem to be you know, pretty legitimate, at least based on, on what I remember, which makes the fact that Vince didn't try to shut this thing down even more ridiculous. It's bizarre. Yeah, I don't know why he didn't think of that, but I have heard from a good source that, yeah, Murray was full of it, that, you know, Vince just didn't like him and had nothing to do with anything else that may or may not have happened. And, you know, I mean, maybe the story is true that someone, you know, proposed to him or whatever, but I don't believe that story. I don't believe he was fired because he turned someone down. So the fire starts to spread now. I mean, you've got these shows where they're interviewing superstar Billy Graham, Billy Jack Haynes, Dr. D. David Schultz, whoever is willing to talk. Oh, uh, the female referee said she was uh, Uh, assaulted by Vince McMahon. Thank you. And so now this is all over the place and it's all bad news. Right. And and you'd think that, you know, with all this bad news going on, if they could just seize on some of that momentum from WrestleMania with Ultimate Warrior coming back, everything would be fine. But A, the scandals aren't going away. And B, that momentum they were hoping to get doesn't happen. Yeah, they were supposed to come out of there with Warrior picking up the feud with Sid, and Taker was going to keep feuding with Jake. But Jake either quit or was fired either the day before or the morning of WrestleMania. I've never known which. I've heard both that he refused to go to rehab uh, as you know a reason for him getting fired and him asking for the book because Patterson was gone and then being told no dice and deciding to quit over it. But you know you end up having you know Taker just completely squash Jake at Mania. He no he no sells the DDT, just basically takes the entire match, pins Jake and Again, I hadn't moved completely to the inside by then, but I was on my way. And when the, as soon as the match was over, I said to the friend I was watching it with, well, we're not going to see Jake anymore. You know, <laughs> I, I, think he, I think he's history. And because how could you possibly do anything with Jake after that? So now they're going to do Taker and Papa Shango. But then Sid ends up leaving. So that's when you get Papa Shango switched over from Undertaker, where at least the feud made sense to getting switched over to Warrior, while Taker ends up getting stuck with the Berserker. So you went from having Warrior-Taker rematches, where it's conceivable that Jake would have won on a screw job at Mania and we never get an Undertaker streak, and Warrior against Sid, which would have been horrible, but you know people buy him as stars, you know they have a good look, it could have been interesting depending on how they did it, to you know, Taker against Berserker, who nobody took seriously, and of course you know, Warrior and Papa Shango led to some of the worst angles of all time. Uh, yeah, well, let me throw this in for what I heard back then was that Jake got kind of a covert offer from WCW, like we'll give you more money if you can get out of your contract. And that supposedly that's what got Jake rolling on his, well, okay, what do I need to do to get out of here? Uh, spirit. But yeah, now I think now we're in the Papa Shango era where they are running even by WWF standards, the stupidest stuff imaginable. like. Yeah, the Papa Shango angles, I think, drove people away in major, major numbers. If the sex scandal wasn't enough for you, if the steroids weren't enough for you, how about we throw this at you? Yeah, it's 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 like a a combination, just a losing combination. You have a guy who's, you know, not a very good worker. The gimmick itself, I didn't think was terrible, but the angle of him taking control of uh, warrior with the slime and him vomiting and stuff like that was even in the ridiculous world of professional wrestling, it was too much. And Papa Shango had not been around for long and hadn't beaten anybody, you know, hadn't even been built up on TV in such a way that you would view him as a star. And now you're supposed to buy him as a main eventer. 
and nobody did. And he couldn't talk, at least not well. Yeah. Um, and they'd always had managers. If ever a guy needed a manager, here was a guy right here. Even if it was hiring somebody from somewhere else or somebody who was just on the street in between gigs, but who could talk just to help get the guy over. But they didn't do that. He had no manager. So he's trying to get over on his own through these ridiculous gimmicks and these horrible promos. You know, this is when attendance completely cratered and it didn't come back until really during the Monday Night Wars, really in 97 into 98. Finally, attendance started coming back up. But attendance went down at this point and it stayed down for the rest of 92, all of 93, all of 94, all of 95 and really all of 96. Although by then it was starting to at least creep upward. Yeah. You know, I know another thing that made the WWF look a lot more major league. We were used to seeing like WWF superstars, WWF challenge being filmed at like NHL or NBA arenas, the major arena with over 12,000 people. Now they're going to smaller and smaller venues. And once again, you you don't have that major league look you're having this wrestling match in front of 3000 people at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's one thing, you know, with raw at the Manhattan center, because you're in a, you know, a pretty cool venue. You can at least sell it on the fact that you're doing something different. And then they took, you know, raw out of the Manhattan center and they started going to Poughkeepsie and to white Plains and to Lowell and to Burlington, Vermont. And it didn't translate. And then, like you said, you know, they went from going to, you know, the 16, 17,000 seat NBA arena full, all lit up so that you can see the crowd and see that it's full to, you know, suddenly they're going to the 8,000 seat arena where, you know, the CBA team plays and there's only 5,000 people in there. And, you know, you can see that they've got areas that are kind of blocked off or darkened and it got worse and worse until like, you know, into 93 and definitely 94, they had some raw tapings that literally looked like they were taking place in high school gyms. Yeah. And, and again, I think it literally worked. Yeah, no, at some point, I mean, I know they were doing small colleges, and like I said, you know, you can just, as a fan, let's say you were a rabid fan from 84 when Hogan got there until, let's say, 96. I mean, you see it right in front of your eyes. It's, they're not recording in major arenas anymore. No, no, and you know, the thing is, people want to be around stuff that's cool. People want to be around stuff that's hot, that's popular. So if you turn on your TV and Superstars is taking place, at the arena where, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a team off the top of my head, the arena where the Indiana Pacers play, and it's completely full, then you think, oh, that's cool. I can't wait to go, you know, when it comes to my town. And when you turn it on and it's taking place in, uh, you know, like you said, Lowell, Massachusetts, or it's taking place in, you know, some tiny arena in a town that, you know, you've heard of, but you would never think to go to, suddenly it doesn't seem so cool anymore. And you think to yourself, well, nobody else likes it. I guess it's not the end thing. I think I'll watch something else. You know, there was time when, like, let's, you know, I, I never thought in like the mid, early to mid nineties, I never thought, okay, the WWS not going to be here in a year, but there are times where I'm like, it might not be here in five years because things are going, you know, it, it was no longer cool. I mean, they picked up a lot of fans in 84 when they brought first brought in Hulk Hogan and they brought in everyone else. And I mean, someone on the stick wrestling message board made a good point about, you know, the kids who were 14, 15, you know, 12, 13, whatever, watching when Hogan first got there are now grownups and it, it's not cool anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and then what happened was, I don't know why it didn't in this case, but, you know, wrestling has always cycled through kids who get into it when they're in elementary school. And then at some point in junior high or early high school, they get out of it because now they're 
team sports that they're in. There's girls listening to records. Hey, let's form a band, getting into other stuff. But then there's another group of kids coming up behind them and you just keep moving on and there's, there's no problem. But the WWF lost that generation of kids. And then the next generation coming up, they didn't have nearly as many and it, it hurt them a lot. They needed that kid audience more than a lot of promotions in the past did because they'd so heavily geared themselves that way. And then kept going further and further with goofy stuff and more family entertainment and silly gimmicks instead of characters to try to get that audience back. And nothing really clicked. And it never did. You know, they finally ended up throwing up their hands and going to the Attitude Era. And that's what you know brought business all the way back and sent it further. You know, I, I have always had this theory that Vince got dragged kicking and screaming into the Attitude Area Era. That that's not what he wanted to do. Uh, he enjoyed his 80s wrestling and he had to change the formula, but, you know, he, he didn't want to. You know, we're forgetting, um, I mean, not only did they bring in Papa Shango and they gave him that huge push, but months later, they bring in Razor Ramon and they immediately put him in main events. Like before yeah. he even wrestled on TV, he was being advertised for a main event match in Philadelphia. And then they brought in Doink the Clown. And I think there's a lot of cool things they could have done with Doink the Clown. Uh, there's an episode of Memphis Wrestling where they show you all of them, but the WWF, it was just a stupid guy, a clown heel, and it, it was horrible. And and they kept, you know, like I said, pushing dumber and dumber characters. Well, I want to say dumber and dumber because nothing was dumber than <laughs> Papa Shango. But, I mean, you know, obviously this was not what the fans wanted as evidenced by ratings, pay-per-view revenue, and what's going on at the arenas, and, and they just never smartened up. I think the I agree with you. I think a lot of the praise for the heel version of Doink, you know, when Matt Bourne was still in the gimmick, I think a lot of it is revisionist history. I mean, I think that there were some cool aspects of it and there were some cool things they could have done, but they didn't. But, you know, watching it in context, I don't think a lot of what people think they see was really there. I don't think that the WWF of 1993 was thinking as complexly about that character as uh you know maybe they would have if it had come on at a at a different period of time later down the road and it's funny you mentioned Razor Ramon I you'd mentioned before about him getting billed for main events before he uh you know really had started and I'd always thought no 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 he must have you know been going on the road beating Virgil and beating Duggan and guys like that to get billed up and he literally had one house show match against Jim Powers and other than that he did nothing but TV squashes until he came in right at the beginning of September as a, or late August as a main eventer with Savage. He was actually a guy that they used the old WWF format for, where you bring a guy in for a lot of TV and then you start him right away at the Garden with Backlund before he's gone anywhere else. And they they did that with Razor. They decided we're going to make a star. We're going to bring him in on top. We're not going to mess around with him in the mid card. And credit to them, they were committed to it. He wasn't the guy I would have picked, but it ended up working out all right, I guess. Yeah, long long term, it definitely did, especially for Scott Hall himself. Now, we're in overtime here, but there's Sorry. two other things I want, I want to talk about. No, this is great. Frank Conan asked a question on the message board. How much do the territories dying have to do with the downturn? And as John mentioned earlier, failure to develop new talent. Since it was harder to bring in a monster of the month to feed your babyface hero, how much did this contribute to creative failures as the proven formula was forced to change? Max, what do you think? I think it was a big problem, and it got worse right when they needed it to not get worse because 
if you look at 91, 92, when things were going downhill, you know, what was left out there? You still had Memphis. Global had taken over the Sportatorium. Uh, you know, not long after that, Smoky Mountain got started. And, you know, they eventually had a, an understanding with Cornette. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. You know, I guess, you know, ECW was in its probably, I think that was probably the Joel Goodhart days, but ECW ended up, you know, getting started soon afterwards. That was kind of it. There wasn't, Portland died. There wasn't really anybody out there to get that was going to make a difference. It wasn't like you could, you know, sign somebody from world class or the, or mid South or the AWA or Crockett who was going to come in and who had that credibility, who had that experience and who you could drop right into a main event, you know, semi main event or upper mid card spot and have them mean something to business. There wasn't anybody like that. An ultimate example being, you know, they brought Mabel in from Memphis because the guy was just absolutely enormous and, you know, you weren't going to find a guy that size under any circumstances for the most part. And then he was a guy whose size wasn't dependent on steroids, but he was not a good worker. He didn't have anything about him that really worked as an attraction, but there there just wasn't anybody else they could go get. So they just sort of had to make do and it wasn't as good. They weren't getting guys who were good enough, guys who had the right look, who had the right experience. It was bad because 93 94 that's when you needed a mid-south or a world class to go get somebody from and those groups weren't there anymore it was all over no i mean there wasn't even uh, a lot of wrestlers that you wanted for, that were in wcw that you re- would have really wanted which brings me to my final point on this and I, by the way i totally agree with everything frank said everything max said i mean the wwf just couldn't go and get a junkyard dog from mid-south that was long gone and they were now bringing in guys and pushing guys that I had barely heard of, guys that I knew from independence and, and around there. You know, there, there was the talent pool, that minor league so-called talent pool was gone. 1993, they bring in Lex Luger. Now, first they bring him in as a heel and they give him an absolutely horrible gimmick, the narcissist. Luger has a motorcycle accident. He's on the shelf for a while. And then July 4th, 1993. They have Yokozuna doing the body slam challenge on a military ship and a helicopter comes out and who comes out, but Lex Luger wearing uh, stars and stripes and he slams Yokozuna and we now have the next Hogan or so we think number one, I thought that it would be a completely different ball game if it had been sting getting out of that helicopter. And if there was any way the WWF could have gotten him, they should have, I think he would have been a difference maker. But number two, I am a Lex Luger fan. I see a lot of potential in him. I saw a lot of potential in him late 80s, early 90s. They gave Lex Luger a push that was doomed to fail. They had the big buildup for SummerSlam, Yoko versus Lex. And they make Lex out to be the biggest candy-ass babyface imaginable. (laughs) I mean, the stuff they were having him do was ridiculous. And... You know, they're counting on him being their next Hogan. At the time, I was taken aback. I'm like, don't you guys watch MTV? Like, Nirvana and rap is what's in. And they're trying to make this guy, you know, like I said, almost a Bob Backlund with a Hulk Hogan look. Max, share your thoughts. Yeah, it was, they they really mishandled Lex Luger for pretty much the entirety of his his time with the promotion. You know, the narcissist gimmick was... A loser, Lex, you know, had shown in WCW that he could be a very good heel, just not this type of heel. You know, they didn't need him to have, you know, the silly gimmick with the mirrors and a nickname that was a word that, you know, to be perfectly frank, I think 
went over the heads of a lot of their people in the audience. Just let him be, you know, Lex Luger. Let him be himself. Let him be the arrogant jock who's got the body, who thinks he's better than everybody else, and go with it from there. And then Lex has also made an effective baby face, but the whole made in the USA thing was just not a fit for him. Maybe there was some other guy that it could have worked for. It could even have worked to some extent for Sting, although not to the extent that they pushed it. But it just wasn't a fit. It didn't fit Lex's personality, even the whole gimmick. Like at what point during Lex's entire career to that point, had he ever been associated with you know, the red, white, and blue and the patriotism and the flag? It, it just came off as extremely forced. And then they built him up to that big match at SummerSlam. And then they don't give him the title, even though they have the celebration afterwards as if he did, which just made the fact that he didn't win the title look even worse. You know, they, uh, they were a promotion in a lot of confusion. The final breakup with Hogan was happening. They weren't quite sure what to do. I mean, here's a promotion that is dying for star power and they've got Randy Savage and they're using him as an announcer and not sending him on the road and using him in pushed feuds where he could have made a difference. It just, the whole thing was just a, a ridiculous situation. It was a, a really a lost year. They needed to have things happen in 93 and with the launch of Raw and some of the changes that way, it seemed like it was getting off to a good start and then it took a bad turn and it ruined the chance for a comeback and kept them down for years. I think things may have been way different had they just, you know, I, my understanding is that, that when they had Luger come out and slam Yokozuna on July 4th, he was getting the title at SummerSlam. I mean, that's what I heard from a good source. And then I later heard that they got cold feet on him and they decided to wait. And it's like, look, you had that build up. You have to find out if he's going to carry the torch. You have to have him beat Yokozuna at SummerSlam the same way that Hulk Hogan came right in and beat the Iron Sheik in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, supposedly they thought the money was in the chase. Like, oh, we can't just stop it now. Let's keep it going. Let's push this out to Mania. You know, maybe, uh, may, you know, maybe we can draw some money off of the chase and people will come to see Lex and Yokozuna in their town because they think tonight's the night, but we'll keep them apart for a while to build the anticipation. But, you know, the problem was they built up SummerSlam so much that story of Lex's life, you know, he had all those feuds with Flair and, you know, never won the title from him. And then by the time they gave him the title, it was because Flair was gone. You know, they built him up to get the big win over Yoko at, at SummerSlam, and then they didn't do it. And consequently, they more or less cut him off at the knees right there. Yeah, they did. I thought that was one of the worst decisions I ever made in wrestling. I mean, like, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, yeah, Lex Luger would have been a giant success or anything like that. But like you said, they cut him off at the knees on that night. Well, we didn't get to every reason why the WWF had such a rough run in the early 90s because there were so many of them. We, we got to the major ones. Max, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on Sick to Wrestling. You were a great guest. Oh, hey, you're a great host. Thanks for having me uh, anytime. All right. Thank you. And I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, who does such a magnificent job and is a great guy. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.